University of Minnesota podcast, Minnesota CropCast. I'm your host, Dave Nikolai. I'm University of Minnesota Extension Educator in Crops. I'm here along with my co-host, uh, Dr. Seth Nave. Uh, Seth is ex Extension Soybean Specialist here at the University of Minnesota. And we have a special guest uh, with us today, uh, Seth, Tom Hoverstead. Uh, and he's out of the University of Minnesota uh, Research and, and Outreach Center at Wasika, Minnesota. Tom is a crop scientist located at that location. Been around there a long time in terms of weed science and crop management. And we thought we'd have Tom come in and talk a little bit about the varietal trials process, uh, along with Seth in terms of corn and soybeans, but in terms of where growers can find their information to help make selections uh, for the 2024 uh, seed sourcing. So I'm going to maybe kick it off here uh, with Tom, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the process. And Tom, uh, as we were starting here, we mentioned a little bit earlier before we got going uh, about a five-step process that you've used in the past uh, to help growers understand some of the sources in terms of finding the best information uh, for selecting their varieties in, in 2023. So you want to go ahead, Tom, and maybe run that uh, past us a little bit more on that in detail. Sure, I would go over that. I've been closely involved with the Minnesota corn performance testing, and I think we can talk about where that's available. The university does some fee-based testing across the state. We go up to Crookston. We utilize as many research and outreach centers as we can and try to get information on genetic potential for corn hybrids that are available for sale in Minnesota. And I think this is an important aspect of what the research and outreach centers and the Minnesota Agricultural Experiment Station can do because variety selection is probably the largest yield, in, yield influencing decision that farmers make and the hardest one to get right. Now, you could be off on fertilizer and at the end of the season say, I could have done better. I made a bad choice. You could have had a weed control failure and say, I could have done better. I didn't spray that field. But in variety selection, you could have done due di diligence and picked what you thought was the best performing variety and been 50 bushels off another variety on your same farm. It happens every year. Some farmers have fields that do better or worse than expected, and it's variety related. So I think it's an important aspect of what farmers have to do this time of year, select their varieties, and we try to provide information we can. One thing about our trials is, and I'm passionate about this, it's unbiased information. No matter who's in the trial, who does best, who does worse, my paycheck is the same. I report what we find. I couldn't say that if I was a seed dealer, if I was selling seed and I had a strip trial on my farm and I knew the west half of the field did better than the east half, my seed varieties are going to be on that west half and that's what people are going to see. And I, I don't blame people for doing that. I, I would do it myself if that was the case. I've got a quote that I posted in my office uh, from a book I read years ago. It's hard to convince a man to believe something when his salary depends on believing something else. And I think our trials really eliminate that aspect of it. You want to talk a little bit about um, the protocol that we have in the trials? Uh, 
the methodology, um, how many how many sites, how do we keep it, uh, so to speak, fresh and unbiased? Well, there's two really important aspects of the work that we do. Replication and randomization. Those are two principles in genetic testing that really allow you to analyze the data and at the end of the day, the end of the trial, you're convinced at a certain confidence interval that the difference in these two varieties is due to genetic potential and not to field-to-field -field variability. So we have that. We have the equipment. We have the facilities to do that. And I think that's an important aspect of our trials. Strip trials are nice. They're usually not replicated. They're very hard to analyze statistically and find out what the variation is because of. And a lot of people use multiple strip trials to get at the same kind of thing. I think that's fine. I've, I've got several things. Of course, I believe in our trials. There's other trials out there. Uh, the corn growers have a good website where you can go and look at county trials and and see multiple trials. There's another trial called the FIRST trials that are located in many of the corn growing areas across the country. My fourth thing I think of when I try to encourage people to investigate varieties is, is talk to your dealer. He's going to try to sell you what he thinks is going to do the best. And he wants you as a repeat customer. He's not going to sell you something that he thinks is going to fail. And my fifth thing is is your own judgment. Go through your experience and try to do what's worked for you in the past. Now, a couple of cautions about all that procedure. And I often tell people, I ask them, do you use our trials to find the highest yielding hybrids? And they say, yes, that's what I'm looking for. And I say, let's do that just a little bit differently. Let's not use our trial to find the highest yielding hybrids. Let's use our trials to predict what's going to be the best next year, because this year is history. It's not going to happen again. We want to find what is most likely to do the best next year, the seed you're buying for next year. What's going to be the best indicator of that? Probably the multi-location average. If a trial, if a hybrid did well in our trial in Wasika this year, doesn't mean it's going to be the best one next year. Oftentimes, I really encourage people to look at as many locations as you can. That's one aspect of, of trying to get that decision right, and we do the best we can. Let me throw out a little new nuance to this. I totally agree with your five-step plan. And I think, um, especially from a historical perspective, I think that's exactly right. You know, the one thing that's changed a little bit in this dynamic that I've seen over the past, you know, of course it's been developing, but especially in the past 10 years, is kind of a brand loyalty uh, by farmers. I and mean, the seed companies really their vested interest is to get farmers to be 100% loyal to them. Uh, they, they, they use all the same marketing um, you know, background that all the other companies do. They want to acquire loyal customers and keep them at all costs. And so you know, there's volume discounts, there's package discounts, there's earlies, 
There's a lot of other things that, that, you know, that, that the companies do to really, really get uh, a lot of loyalty. There's a lot of, there's still a lot of farmer dealers, of course, that are selling their own seed. And so, um, you know, one thing that I've thought of that's, that's maybe just a little bit of a nuance to your five-step plan here is that I think farmers within their own if they're going to be 100% loyal to, to one brand, um, then within that, then they really can get the best information from their local dealer and that dealer network and that company information that provides uh, data on the how those those varieties rank relative to each other and then how those varieties might be best positioned on their own farm. I think those folks have really good information and that's really the holy grail, right, is how do you position among all of the varieties that are elite and have the potential to yield the best. There's a big group of varieties that probably perform equally well across the landscape. So then the next question is how would you position them on the landscape? And I think those, I think those dealers probably um, have, uh, and the agronomists that work for them, uh, probably have some of the best background. What, how do you feel about that uh, perspective on it, Tom? Yes, I, I certainly agree that your dealer's going to know a lot more than, say, someone like myself. Um, I see a lot of this information, but I don't see all the information they get about all the environments they've produced these hybrids in. And they have some that are suited for higher populations. They have some that seem to do well in what people might call tough conditions or, you know, they have high yielding potential that does well on high yield potential fields. And I think that's the information you sit down and discuss with your dealer. Go through ours and say, okay, I'm interested in in your lineup, specifically these numbers. Where would you put them on my farm? And, and I think that's very helpful. Another thing I would like to caution people about is uh, I mentioned your own experience. Now, if you had a hybrid that did well this year, and you want to plant it again next year, that's probably pretty, that's probably okay. But realize corn yields are going up. In our trials, 2.8 bushels per acre per year. I think you can look at most all the data says somewhere in the two to two and a half bushel per acre per year. So if you stick with a hybrid for three years, realize that on that third year, you're seven and a half bushels behind what's new. So I wouldn't stick with a hybrid very long. It's nice to have your own experience and something that works well for you, but don't be afraid to move on to the new stuff. Yeah. Jeff Coulter has a nice uh, little algorithm. I think that he's kind of built, uh, that includes, you know, percentage of the land devoted to various, you know, um, legacy versus brand new uh, varieties and hybrids. And I, I kind of like this idea that, um, you know, farmers may want to come up with some sort of a scheme where they, they devote, um, you know, maybe 25% of their land uh, to some variety that's been a really, or hybrid that's really been a real strong performer on their field. And it's done well for them since they've, since they've started looking at it you know, and another 25 or 50% of, of something that's relatively new, but maybe 
uh, it's been out there a year and then they can devote another 10 or 20, 25% of their land to some, some new varieties or hybrids. I, I think, you know, it's kind of comes from this investment portfolio kind of a perspective, but I think that's a, that's a nice way of, of looking at this. And I think if farmers got, you know, kind of in the, in the habit of it, I think, you know, doing this one year probably doesn't do a lot for a farmer, but the idea is to come up with a, come up with a structure for how to lay those varieties out or hybrids out. And I think, I think that can then maybe take some of the stress off of farmers if they can kind of fit these varieties and hybrids into some boxes. Yep. I think that's good advice to investigate the new material, probably more so in corn than in soybeans, because corn being the product of two inbreds, soybeans self-pollinated, they don't move quite as fast as corn maybe, but, uh, Certainly true in the corn industry. They really are advancing yield very quickly. Tom, uh, besides yield, um, have you been engaged with or the staff in looking at any other factors in terms of uh, the corn um, standability, test weight, moisture, or, or whatever? And then besides that, uh, any recommendations that you would have uh, for 2024 um, in addition or besides yield to consider uh, for corn based upon your observations? Well, here's some recommendations that I would look at. Um, every year we test a number of hybrids across a number of locations. Now, we have a site at Staples. When I go up there and look at some of the 85-day hybrids that we sometimes use down here, maybe in the borders. I do. I like to do that. I like to put some early corn in the borders, so I kind of watch that tassel, and I know when the rest of the trial is going to tassel. They don't even look the same. So be careful about how far you go north and south when selecting hybrids. Try to stay within. There's an old relative maturity map of Minnesota that has been in place since the 1960s, I think, since uh, they started working on hybrid corn of, of what's adapted. I'd stay in those zones. I, I would use the southern zone. I wouldn't try to look at the northern zone and say, well, I'm interested in early hybrid and expect it to do the same here. So stay within your maturity zone, but try to get as many locations in that as you can. Um, Grain moisture certainly is something that uh, farmers consider. Our trials, the it's it's almost linear as far as what's adapted to your zone. As far as uh, later maturity has higher yield potential. Now, I'm not saying that every 108 day does better than every 105 day, but if you look at the average of all our hybrids. Typically, as you increase relative maturity, you increase yield about one bushel per acre. And that's averaged across all the material we look at. Gets about three-tenths of a point wetter. So you got to balance that. And I've looked at that. The sweet spot for right here in Waseca seems to be about 104 day as far as, as maximizing yield and adequate harvest moisture. A lot of people like to try those 107, 108-day hybrids. They have excellent yield potential. Recognize they could be a little bit wetter. And I also tell people, if you're choosing an early hybrid, at least here in my zone, 
South Central Minnesota, I wouldn't look at anything earlier than 95 day. Those earlier hybrids are bred and adapted and tested in a different environment. And I, I'm not so sure they would perform here the way you might expect them to. You know, we, uh, we're going to publish some of this in our Minnesota Crop News, but do you um, want to mention uh, maybe a, a link or a URL people can go to to find uh, a little bit more in detail information we're talking about in terms of the variety testing? Yeah, the Minnesota Agricultural Experiment Station posts all these trials, including corn, soybeans, wheat, oats, barley, a number of grains that I find them at varietytrials.umn.edu. Okay, we'll you can double that. check that, Dave. Uh, yep, varietytrials.umn.edu, and it's a it's a nice source for not only the corn and soybean trials, but uh, other crops as well. There's and, something on there for everyone. And you let know, me let me try to th- let me throw out another thought that extends on this idea of of using you know I mentioned the utilizing your local. Um, agronomist and and uh, local seed salesman and and I wanted I wanted to bring this back to the variety trials. I think the the idea behind my uh, thought with using your seed dealer and and the agronomist for that information on those varieties is that a farmer really also needs uh, to look at an independent review of how different brands compete with each other. And that's really an important point of uh, the university trials. Uh, because the numbers are relatively limited in there. I think some people look at the variety trials and say, well, uh, you know, the variety or hybrid that I'm looking for next year isn't in there. So therefore it doesn't have any value to me. I think you need to use it. My, my suggestion is use variety trials as more of a research tool to look at performance across those brands. And if your company isn't represented, I think you should ask them uh, to uh, enter varieties into the public test. I think that's that's a very reasonable thing to do. And companies enter those even at the local level. They don't all come from St. Louis or Johnston or um, you know uh, Switzerland when they uh, when they submit these. They a lot of the local folks can enter those. So I think it's important to do that. Um, and I think, you know, that's one way that you can look at, at this. And I think one, one important thing within the soybean world specifically is this idea of, of the trade package in terms of herbicide resistance because we kind of have a little bit of a, of a differentiation in the branding between companies and what, 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 um, what herbicide packages they, they represent. And so... I think look very closely at whether how they extend um, varieties look versus enlist is a good example and, and see those come from a little bit different genetic background. They come from different genetic sources. They're going to be quite different varieties in most cases. So I think it's a good thing to look at. My, um, my colleague in Wisconsin did a nice survey of their uh, their testing program, and they found in this particular year, they found the enlist varieties yielded exactly the same as the extend varieties across all four of the zones that they looked at in Wisconsin. I have not had a chance to look at uh, Aaron's Minnesota variety trials uh, that are that have just been posted, uh, but I will do that, and I'll I'll do a little um, evaluation. But any farmer can do the same kind of thing: is look through those varieties and identify the the 
kind of the elite ones and look at how the extend ones uh, perform versus enlist, I think it's a reasonable thing to do. I might also mention uh, another source of information, although not replicated to the extent that we would do it at the university. The Minnesota corn growers oftentimes will uh, represent uh, data from county corn and soybean plots. But again, uh, they may, may not be replicated in that except by location. So you have to keep that in mind, but another source. Um, we were spe speaking about soybeans uh, for both of you. Um, how are we doing in 23 here on, on soybeans? Uh, you know, uh, the other day they were just, they were talking about the fact whether or not they, you know, have a situation where you really have uh, a perhaps, uh, you know, that rain makes a difference in, in terms of things. So are you asking where the yields came from, Dave? Well, I'm, I'm basically asking about the fact that did we have August rains, you know, in, in terms of that, or we didn't have August rains and the soybean yields. And I think what we're looking at here is is um, we didn't probably have as, as big an increase in yields, perhaps, as we expected with corn in a dry season. So, I mean, reflect a little bit about, you know, our 23 soybean yields and then maybe talk about, Seth, you mentioned uh, Aaron in our, in our testing program as well as far as uh, data in in terms of uh, locations. Yeah, Tom, what? how do you feel about corn versus soy? I think my question is, would be, how did corn perform versus soybean? And I've heard a lot of discussion about this this year. And so I'm interested what you saw at your location and maybe what you heard elsewhere. So where was the big surprise in yields this year? I think this year around my area close to south central minnesota most people when they got into the corn they were a little bit surprised at how well it was doing i think uh, a lot of them our, our our modern genetics must be pretty efficient at using fertilizers and seems to get by we didn't have a lot of extra moisture couple things that I think were important. We were cooler than normal. Everybody wants to compare this year to 1988. 1988 was much worse, but it was two and a half degrees warmer. We avoided a lot of the heat stress that sometimes can be a problem for corn. And a lot of people harvested corn in the 250 bushel per acre range here when they did not expect it when you looked at our rainfall pattern. I think soybeans, they probably weren't quite as impressed and I think Seth can talk more about what makes soybean yield potential. But a couple of years ago, we were having some 75 bushel farm averages. This year, it was more like in the lower 60s, which is not a crop failure. But when a couple of years ago, you were looking at 70s, uh, I guess 60 anymore is kind of what you expect. So I, I think people were not as impressed with soybean yields as they were with corn yields given the conditions we had this year. Yeah, I think we, I think most physiologists would, you know, would want something around a yield ratio of three to three, two, something like that. Minnesota state average tends to be closer to four. And that partially this includes, you know, a lot of soybean acres in the far north, but we also have some corn that that's far north as well. So our corn soybean yield ratio or soybean corn yield or corn soybean yield ratio is generally four plus. And I think we always, as a soybean person, I wish it was closer to three, but I, I don't, 
I don't think that we um, we get there very often. So I think in some ways, I think this year was a little bit more more typical. But I also think that being dry in the middle of the year when corn was pollinating, there was a lot of concern. I think maybe maybe that was part of part of why we thought our corn did so well is that there was some baked in low expectations on corn. Did do you kind of feel like that might be the case as well, Tom? I think that's true. I think everybody was nervous around pollination time saying we need a rain and we need it today. It didn't always happen. Uh, there are some people that were very disappointed with corn yields. You get to uh, southeast Minnesota. There was a zone you can look at the drought monitor that hit D5, and I think there's some real disappointing yields out there. And maybe in those cases, soybeans uh, weren't quite as bad. I think soybeans are a little bit more resilient to drought than extreme drought than than corn. So that that may be the reverse, but. Uh, yeah, I think you're I, on to I think you're on to something. It's both the the severity. I think the the soybean can live through some of this if it's really severe. The the corn will just not do anything because it it's got a, this big plant. It's got a support, and the soybean can kind of just hold back. Especially if we've drought from the beginning, it tends to be smaller. It's it's more conservative in its overall growth. It uses less water. And then if we do get a little shot of rain at the end, then the soybean can put something on. And I think that's that's a little bit of the difference is you get severe drought with a little tiny shot of rain. You get a half inch rain at the right time at the end of the year and soybean will do something. Uh, but, but by that time, the corn is just too late for it. You know, one of the things that uh, the varietal trials uh, Seth does in, in soybeans, we do, a, I think, a very good job uh, with the uh, university situation is even if you don't have your favorite variety or your company isn't listed in there, the information in terms of evaluation, whether it be on Phytophthora or iron chlorosis and the different scales and so forth, I think um, just spending some time with some of that criteria even if you're looking at, a, obviously, a, a private company's uh, varieties, uh, is, is time well spent because you're going to obviously look at yield and we have it categorized different ways in terms of the, you know, the top and the percentage. But there's a, there's a whole host of other information, I think, that's in there that's e e extreme value when it comes down to uh, uh, picking within a company's uh, uh, varieties or whether you're needing to rotate within a company's uh, portfolio because you're worried about soybean cyst nematode and you just want to have that inside rotation. But any comments about that? I would just extend off what I said earlier about keeping the companies on honest. And I think use the variety trials as a way to look at beyond beyond the yield, but look at those other, other traits. I think you're right, Dave. So we have um, Aaron's project does a really nice job evaluating for IDC and SCN um, yields and, and tolerance. Uh, and so uh, being able to just check on those varieties and see how they yielded. And, you know, obviously the companies are going to present their varieties as, you know, eights and nines or ones and twos in most cases. Um, so just see how those line up with the ratings that the university provides. And Again, like Dave says, your variety may or hybrid may not be there, but just kind of get a, a sense for how how those rankings line up and how optimistic or pessimistic those those companies might be on their varieties is is probably a reasonable thing to do. Yeah, you can develop your own checklist of that, and sometimes we talk about offensive or defensive traits and so forth. 
that are um, are, are listed uh, listed in there in in terms of that. Um, Tom, any other comments that you might have about uh, 2023 and going into 24 and things in in general in terms of uh, variety or, or hybrid uh, selection that we didn't touch on already? I've got two other items I'd like to bring up. Uh, one relates to the corn trials. Seth talked about the enlist and extend soybeans. Uh, corn, we do everything as if it were conventional corn. No traits at all, not even Roundup. Uh, so we, we grow, you have access to what, and some seed companies may even put in what they call base genetics to get at uh, you can get a hybrid in a number of different trait packages, but if you can talk to your dealer about what's in our trials, maybe it's the base genetics and it, you can look at the potential there. Or there are a number of people that want conventional. There are a number of organic growers that can use our trials and make their selections with that. Another thing I think is important to consider when selecting varieties is service after the sale too. I mean, there are out there some probably, and I, I'm not real familiar with them. I'm sure there's some low-cost companies that uh, what I would call kind of cash and carry, you can probably save some money on seed. And if, if you want to do that and become your own agronomist, that's probably okay if, if you feel confident in that. Others bring quite a bit of service along with the sale if there's problems with the emergence or something out there that you need help with. Uh, some of these have a lot of service with the products they sell. So consider that when you're making your seed decisions also. And so that there's sounds like there's a two-step process. One is I think a farmer needs to identify, is there any yield difference between these varieties? And I think a farmer should look at it very objectively and not just make up their decision whether they're going to buy the premium stuff and then justify it or buy the cheap stuff and justify it, but really take a thoughtful look and, and, and see if there is any real yield differences. Because if there are, if there are real yield differences between varieties, those yield differences pay for a lot of seed. I don't think there's any question about that. So I think farmers need to look at that. And then I think Tom embedded in your in your response is really this risk management question is okay if we do have a problem what's the guarantee or the warranty on these things and what not only are they going to verbally do but what does this company reliably do for us is it do we do we oftentimes see some um, you know free seed or reduced cost seed in a replant situation those are those are not small things to consider so i think i think you're right on with that tom and when i started working with these trials uh of course there's there's big companies that have big marketing campaigns and you see it all over the place but i learned right away that uh there's a lot of companies that have access to good genetics and they are out there and you can certainly find them by looking through our trials yeah, I think I don't know if we want to how far we want to go down this rabbit hole, but I the the actual genetics um, come from a very very narrow pool of companies, both in corn and soybeans, and those get rebranded. I think it's important. For, I think most farmers know that, um, but I I think to tag on your point, Tom, is that farmers shouldn't consider that these these other companies are only getting the seconds or the 
the poor, you know, sister lines of, of the ones that are, are swallowed up by the primary companies. In a lot of cases, uh, those decisions are made quite early in the, in the pipeline and those, some of those lines come off. And sometimes those, those second and third tier companies actually can come up with some, uh, if, if not the same exact genetics on the soybean side, they can actually come up with some superior lines that actually do better than, than these primary companies' um, varieties that, that they thought they had identified in, in the beginning. I can think of some good examples in the soybean world from a few years ago where we had some secondary lines that actually were probably superior lines. So um, I think, again, take a careful look at it. It's, it's almost impossible to get down to the detail of knowing all of this stuff, but if you can integrate information from all those places, including, we didn't mention, um, independent consultants. We have we have a good network of independent consultants in Minnesota, and a lot of farmers utilize them. And those folks, uh, because of an economy of scale, they work with a lot of acres and a lot of producers. They they have um, an insight on this that that a lot of other people don't, because they basically are living this question uh, all fall and early winter, making these decisions or, or helping farmers make these decisions through the uh, buying 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 season. I was yeah, that's add- good. That's good advice. I, I, I was going to add that variety selection is a numbers game, and the more numbers you can look at, the better off you'll be. So, think of it that way. Any um, other last words here, Seth? You, know, I think you almost had the last words there, but from a soybean perspective in twenty twenty four, that we that you didn't mention that you want to mention, or have we covered it? No, I think you know we'll we'll probably narrow in on some of the, I'd, I'd like to have some shows later on uh, both IDC and SCN. I think we're going to, we're going to hit on these with more specificity, uh, but farmers really need to protect the bottom side. Uh, farmers in Western Minnesota that have IDC, um, you know, it's a really, you got to split the difference on these things and, and protect uh, and have good varieties that, that maintain yields. Uh, while also picking some varieties that we're going to have top-end yield potential. So that's that's more difficult. And then the SCN question is even more complicated because we really have little information from individual farms on what kind of populations of SCN they have in their fields and how damaging those are. We know pretty much everybody has SCN. We know that SCN is probably damaging, but um, how much and how how valuable is a is a Peking type variety to individual farmers is still a little bit up in the air. But let's let's have a show. Let's Dave. Let's do an independent show on each one of those later this winter, and we can we can work through some of those details later. So no, I don't have anything of any uh, of any value to contribute here at the end. I guess is the is the point. Well, I'll, I'll take that as a cue. Uh, I want to say thanks to uh, to Tom Hoverstead for joining us. Uh, here today on Minnesota CropCast and for this information. And and Tom, you want, why don't you mention one last time the URL, where to go to to find uh, um, more of a, the criteria as well as our, our yields on the varietal trials? Go to varietytrials.umn.edu. You'll see the uh, results from this year's testing of a number of crops, including corn and soybeans. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Tom, uh, for taking the time to visit with us. We appreciate that. Um, and, of course, uh, we want to thank folks for uh, tuning in here to uh, University of Minnesota CropCast. 
and uh, to my co-host, Dr. Seth Nave, University of Minnesota Extension of Soybean Specialist, is Dave Nikolai, uh, weed uh, and crop scientist uh, with the University of Minnesota and crops educator. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.